The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Does it feel like 20 already? Episode 20. When your podcast turns 20. Hey, everybody. Thank you for sticking it out with us. Over 20 episodes of us doing this, kind of leaking these out so slowly. Hopefully, you're enjoying the uh, faster pace of the episode releases that we've been having coming out. I know I have. So, Ilya... Neither one of us went to the Sundance Film Festival this year. Nope. Yeah. I I kind of like it and I kind of don't. I mean, I feel like I used to have my finger on the pulse of independent cinema and I haven't been paying as close of attention to it this year as I have in years past. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And it was a really successful year for acquisitions. It looks like there was a bunch of stuff acquired. It looks like dollars were up. But uh, again, it's uh, yeah, we weren't there. So we're going to have to uh, do another special episode to to cover this. Maybe uh, Mark Stoller yeah, will come maybe, back. Maybe we'll bring back Mark Stoller. You know, what we should talk about, though, is the fan mail we received from cinematographer Charles Pappert. Oh, my God. How did that happen? Well, I think you were basically taunting him in the last episode. I was taunting him in the last episode and then I proceeded to taunt him on Facebook directly. <laughs> oh, really? You <laughs> You called him out on Facebook. Well, it's because I said something. Okay, so here's what happened. I posted uh, on Facebook about the episode with Rachel Morrison, which I, uh, I'm i still peeing my pants that we got to interview Rachel Morrison. And he said, did you do an um, uh, blah, blah, blah track like we did with him? So for those of you listening to us who haven't already tuned out, when I was editing Charles Papert's episode, I always cut out all the, not all, but many of the um, uh, stammer, whatever, from everybody. When I was editing Charles's episode, I was like, am I really saving that much time for the listener? And so I cut a track, and I'm going I'm, I'm to put a little piece of it here just so you can hear what it sounds like. Here it goes. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, I didn't. Uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, it, that um, um, I can sort of, you know. Um, so, um, you know, when it, when it comes, uh, uh, that was Ilya and myself and Charles and, and, and us stammering and stuttering. That's all the stuff I pulled out. Now I, I only just played maybe a few seconds for you. Mm. In reality, there's five minutes, five minutes of that mind numbing garbage <laughs> that I pulled out of that episode. So I posted on Facebook a thing about that. And Charles said, did you do that track with Rachel Morrison? And I said, no. And we certainly didn't shout you out twice in the same episode. Well, okay. So here's Charles's email from Charles Pappert. Longtime listener, first time emailer. Just wanted to say, oh, hey, love the podcast. Love those Fujinons. Love those Alluras. Boom. You said it. It wouldn't happen. And I have proved you wrong in your face. Thanks for the double shout outs, fellers. So that was acclaimed cinematographer Charles Pappert. (laughs) Calling us out with a great piece of fan email. Who DP'd every episode of Key and Peele that ever happened. That's right. And also the first season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And all kinds of other wonderful stuff. Brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. Charles, you certainly won't get at least two shout outs in this episode. No, not going to (laughs) happen. Okay, so Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, today it is a Steadicam operator, second unit uh, shooter, and finally cinematographer in his own right, Dan Neese. Dan Neese, who did tons of work with uh, David Lynch, Quentin Tarantino, and all kinds of other people. He was the Steadicam operator on Blue Velvet. Yeah. How how cool is that? Dan has 
a great war story last week, too. If you have not listened to Dan's war story, go back and listen to it and you'll hear him talk about cockface. You have cockface. That's a good impression. Thank you. Well, I listen to it a lot. <laughs> All right. Here he is, Dan Neese. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. You're one of the people we've been wanting to get on here since the very beginning. We talked to you about doing this before we even started. Oh, well, I'm glad I worked <laughs> out, you know. Cool. So before we get into it, you have just an insane resume, an insane amount of experience that I think people are going to find fascinating. But let's go way back to your education. And you didn't start studying film, correct? I started out in pharmacy school back at the University of South Carolina. I mean, I grew up in a very small town of 2,000 people in, in the bottom part of South Carolina, surrounded by swamps and alligators. And my father was a doctor in the little town, and my mother was a pharmacist. And so I thought, well... You know, I guess I've got to make a living. I'll get into the medical professions. And, but when I was 13, my mom bought a Super 8 camera. And I started filming everything with that camera. And then in 76, I think my father had a stroke. And she said, well, you need to get out of town. So she sent me out here to L.A. USC had this thing called a summer school called the USC Universal Summer Cinema Program, where you spent three days a week at USC and the other two days a week in, on the Universal lot meeting with different people. I got to meet Edith Head. I got to meet Randall Kleeser, who had just done... Uh, a few things. I don't think he'd done Blue Lagoon at that point. And we were going to get meet Alfred Hitchcock, but he got sick. And we, what we saw, Family Plot had just come out. Oh, cool. And so we got to see that, but Alfred couldn't meet with us. I'm just curious. Your father had a stroke. And so your mother's reaction was to send you to LA, not to stay with your father at that time? She could tell it weighed pretty heavy on us. And, and, and it was like, I was 19 years old. Oh, okay. And I got in a, a Volkswagen van and I drove across <laughs> the country to LA. I didn't fly out. I drove across with a friend. And then uh, came out and spent the, the summer out in school and then turned around and drove back with some of my schoolmates. I, one of them was, lived in Frederick, Maryland. So I said, well, I'll drive you to Frederick, Maryland. So we, we went to San Francisco first and then we just turned and went straight across the country to Maryland and, and dropped one off in Maryland, one in Pennsylvania. And, and then and I came back home. Mm-hmm. You know, for a 19-year-old kid, it was a big adventure. So That's pretty awesome. Yeah, to come yeah, out to Hollywood. And I'm from the South as well, so like yeah. I remember the first time I came out here. And just yeah. Where'd you where'd you grow up? I'm from Orlando, Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I've spent a lot of time in Orlando. My parents took me down to Disney World when they first opened up. So. <laughs> and so that, that was really, uh, I liked that a lot, you know. So you came out here when you were 19, and were you aiming at going to film school? Or, I mean, like, even back up a little bit further, you got a Super 8 camera. What are the things that you made? Do you still look at it? Have you seen any of them? I, I think there's some still in our house in South Carolina. It was, I'd like build models and put them in the swimming pool, push them around and make my little film about that. Or, But, you know, I learned something very important early on that the camera that I had was not a reflex camera. And so everything was misframed because <sighs> it, was, it was had a parallax finder on it. Yes. Even though it had a zoom lens and the finder would zoom with the lens, you didn't quite frame it upright. So that was an early lesson. But it was back when for $3, you could get a cartridge with Super 8 film and a prepaid mailer and you could shoot it send it in and, and get the pictures back all for three bucks. That's pretty sweet. It was, it was, it was I mean, really great. Three bucks was a lot more. At well, the time. it was a lot, of, it was a lot of money back there when, when I was 13, but still, you know, it was, it was doable and it was, you, you learn a lot that way. And, and then also taking still pictures with either regular film or Polaroids back when Polaroid was big. Yeah. We didn't have digital cameras. We didn't have things like that. We had 
this stuff called film, you know, and, and that was really all there was. So like, what were the movies that you were, were you emulating movies that already existed or what were the things that were inspiring you to make your Super 8 films at the time? I didn't go to the see movies that much because we lived in a small town. And so to go see a movie, the nearest theater was at least 10 miles away. Uh huh. So you'd have to like go to the next town to see a movie and they only had one screen. And then I think there was a drive-in around, but you know, I was too young to be going off by myself to any of those places. But we had one of the Philco Futura television sets that had the picture tube and the rotating mount up on the top. Oh, wow. And it was black and white. We watched Ed Sullivan, like when the Stones or when the Beatles or Coco Gigio or stuff <laughs> came on, you know, and, and we'd see that and we'd see that, you know, I didn't get to sit up late enough to see the Tonight Show and at that time. But one other thing that was embedded in my mind was the news would come on at five o'clock every afternoon. You'd see footage from the Vietnam War directly into your house. Oh, wow. You'd see people getting blown away. on. I mean, they didn't really censor it very much. It was like unabated Vietnam War footage coming right in and you you as a kid you were seeing this but it was very visually stunning and, and embedded itself in your mind so that that was something that you would see and it would stick with you and then whatever television shows that you would see that we only had three channels and only two of those came in good <laughs> it was growing up in the 60s in the south so it was race rights it was the hippies. It was the free love. And I was too young for the free love, but I saw, <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw instances of it on television or Kent State or, you know, I remember John F. Kennedy getting shot. Wow. I remember when, when Martin Luther King was shot. I don't remember Malcolm X. For some reason, I don't know why I don't remember him, but I remember Bobby Kennedy getting shot. And I mean, there, there was like a, a bounty on Kennedys there for a while because they, yeah. they, they were taking them out as fast as they could have them. So do you think any of this found its way into like your early experiments with uh, super eight filmmaking or were you just making stuff that like, what was the main inspiration for the stuff you were making? I just thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the mechanism of it. I was fascinated by the fact that I could do this and then get it back and see what it looked like. The super eight film was really plentiful. You could get it everywhere because yeah. I mean, uh, you, you either had Kodak or there was GAF. Kmart sold it on the on the, the shelves like we'd go to Augusta, Georgia, or which was 45 miles away, or go to Columbia. You'd go to Kmart. You could buy as much as you could. <laughs> you know, some, some of the film was cheaper stuff, and some of the Kodak stuff was the really great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you'd just really sh go out and just shoot as much of that as you could, and we'd end up with these reels, and we'd bring them back and show them and have fun with them. So what you were doing at that point, you know, between the ages of like 13 to 19, that was enough to make your mother think that you might pursue this to send you off to USC. Yeah, she, she thought that because, you know, my dad was very strict. He, he was much older than my mother and, and he came through the depression. He was very uh, like good child is seen and not heard. And, and he, when I'd get out of school, he'd say, come down to the doctor's office and sit in the waiting room. And I'd, I'd sit in the waiting room so he could look down through the hallway from his chair in his office and watch me study because... I had to be observed or, you know, I couldn't possibly do it on my own. So <laughs> that sort of thing. And my mom was always the creative type and she always believed in me. And it was like, you can do whatever you want to do and you go out and, you know, do good things. This is like 1976, you said? Yeah, that's when I went to USC. It was in 1976. So what was it like here in 1976? The cars were different. You know, there, there, was, there wasn't near as much traffic. I moved here in 88 permanently and the, the traffic, it was not that bad when I moved here in 88. Now it's horrendous, you know. Yeah, yeah. There were some things that were here then that aren't here now, but the Cinerama Dome is still here. I saw Logan's Run and when it was released in the Cinerama Dome. Oh, wow. That's cool. That was pretty cool. El Coyote was there. I remember going to El Coyote. And, but I stayed in the dormitories down in at USC in a dorm called Mark's Tower, which, and the, the actual cinema school 
was in a, a little plywood hut out in the middle of the park in between Mark's Tower and, and the rest of the place. It was, a, it was a round sort of donut-shaped building, and the center was a courtyard. And it was basically, the, that was the cinema school at that time. They hadn't built the big fancy one they have now. <laughs> yeah. and, and they had Arieses and Bolexes and things like that. And so yeah. we'd, we'd go in and check those out and we could shoot things with those. And then for two days a week, we'd go to Universal and we'd go like, we went to Albert Whitlock's workshop where he'd talk with us about how he did like 85% of the Hindenburg with glass shots. Wow. And he showed us glass shots from the birds and from a lot of different movies. He was originally from England. And they had him up in an attic in one of the stages in Universal, and that was his workshop. And he was up there with a Mitchell camera, and he'd, he'd sit there and he'd paint away. He'd do these glass shots, you know, matte paintings. I know. It's kind of a lost art now. Oh, he was like the best. He was like, you know, now they do digital matte paintings. But yeah. at that time, it was a real sheet of glass, and he'd bring it out on the set, and he would line it up and look at it and paint just the parts that he needed. And then you'd leave the rest of it clear so that you could shoot through it and do these things. And yeah. so this was back when special effects was a real hands-on art. Yeah, yeah. It's like pre-industrial light and magic even. Oh, yeah. Yeah, much before that. And, and they still used optical printers. And then people started computerizing these printers. And there was a company in Atlanta called Cinetron that made the first motion control systems. Mm -hmm. And then Disney and all the companies out here would use the Sinatron motion control systems. Those computers, they were Hewlett Packard computers at the time. I've still got an original folder from Sinatron with one of the printouts from the computers, but all their promotional brochures and stuff, because that was like the big thing. You had the big Oxbury Master Series animation stand, which is 12 feet tall. Yeah. And and then you'd put these uh, stepper motors on them, and then you would use the Sinatron system to control them. And I actually have an Oxbury in my garage right now because I, I bought it off of eBay because <laughs> I, I started out as an animator when I first yeah. went to school at University of South Carolina. I, I went to both USC's. So I, I went to the University of South Carolina and then I went when I was 19 <laughs> to U, University of Southern California to study for the summer. And then I went back and I was in pharmacy school at University of South Carolina. I went back after that summer and changed to media arts. Mm. And then uh, got an associate of arts and a bachelor of media arts and then a master of media arts. So why didn't you stay at USC in California? Well, I hadn't really gotten it in my head to make the move out here. You know, it's a big move coming from a little tiny town to Los Angeles. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it was quite an adventure, you know. And so I went as kind of an intermediary step. I went to University of South Carolina and Columbia, South Carolina and studied yeah. there. And then when I got in graduate school, I was the graduate assistant in charge of the Oxbury Animation Stand. We'd gotten an uh, Oxbury filmmaker, the little animation stand, the one that has one column with a 16 millimeter camera. And then I started shooting news for WIS television in Columbia, South Carolina, driving the truck with a, with a little dish. And the, the Thompson or either Sony Plumicon tube cameras and the mm-hmm. three quarter inch porta packs and all that kind of stuff. I'd go to graduate school. Then I I would work as a graduate teaching assistant. And then when I was done with that, I would work the night shift at the television station. So I was only getting about six hours sleep a night Oof. because I had two jobs. And I, and I, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. And it was, but you know, I, I was young and excited to be doing it. And I had a good time. And then I had a friend of mine that would meet me when I finished on Friday night, would meet me out in front of the WIS television station with my car with six surfboards on it. And we'd go and we'd jump in the car and run down to the <laughs> beach and surf all weekend. And so, you know, that, that was kind of my life at that time. Is that the time? Like you made a short that won a Student Academy Award, correct? It got a regional nomination for Student Academy Award. It was an animated film with my buddy. Well, actually, I made one before that that had my my roommate at the time in it called El Gato. And that one opened up the Los Angeles International Animation Festival. It was the first film shown there that year. It was a little one minute short about a a guy and a cat. What year about was this? And that was about 70... It was in the 70s. It was probably the fall of 76 after I got back from USC out here, or maybe 77. 
I remember the second one, the one that I got nominated for a Student Academy Award was 1980. So this one was 79. Got it. Yes, that's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and but but I did that one, and it was about this guy. It was who was my roommate at the time. I rotoscoped him, and he had this cat that he that he couldn't uh, do anything with because the cat would just, he tried to give it food and water and milk and all this stuff, and the cat just looked at him and meowed, and so he put it in the microwave oven. <laughs> <laughs> and and the cat, even when he microwaved the cat, it still didn't do anything. The cat, the cat just kept mewing, and then so there was no solution. But then the second film, the one that got the nomination was there was a guy named Jasper Johns that grew up like, see, uh, my little town of Blackville, where I mm-hmm. grew up, 10 miles from there is a town called Barnwell, which is where James Brown was born. Mm-hmm. And then 14 miles on the other side of that is a little town called Allendale, which is where Jasper Johns was born or not born, but where he grew up. And Jasper Johns, when I went to the University of South Carolina and I went to the main campus the first year in 1974. And then uh, I came back and went to the regional campus for a couple of years in Allendale, South Carolina, which is where Jasper grew up, and then went back to um, Columbia after that. And and what I learned when I was in Allendale, because we had an art teacher down there, and she was telling us about Jasper, and that Jasper had originally gone to the University of South Carolina to study art. And he went there, and they told him he didn't have any talent and sent him away. Oops. And he went to New York and became... Jasper Johns. Jasper Johns. <laughs> and made his flag and target paintings and was, you know, up there with Andy Warhol and yeah. all those guys. And his paintings are worth millions of dollars. And so they didn't realize what was going on. The reason I'm telling you this story is because when I decided to do the second animated film, Jasper used this technique called encaustic. And encaustic was wax with oil pigment mixed in with it. The flag paintings and, and, the, and the targets were all painted in encaustic. It's an ancient way of painting of pigment within wax. And you melt the wax and then you paint with it. And so my film was called Sarah, C-E-R-A, which was Spanish for wax. And my first film was El Gato about the cat. But anyway, I, this ancient technique of encaustic um, I decided, well, this, this might be a fun way to try to animate the wax. And so I, what I did was I got on the Oxbury animation stand. I made a way to register glass plates by cutting in a, a hole in a piece of foam core so I could drop the plates down in there. Whenever I wanted to change a plate, I'd pull it out and just drop another one in there. And I'd prepared these plates with different patterns on them of either where I'd pour the wax on or brush it on or drip it on or whatever on these glass plates. And then I'd put it on the, the animation stand and I'd either top light it or I'd bottom light it so the wax would glow. And then the, the lights would make the wax hot. And then I'd take my fingers and I'd stuff them in there and, and manipulate the wax under the camera. And then I'd take my hands out and take a picture and then manipulate some more and take a picture. Or I'd take a putty knife and I'd cut big gashes in the wax or, or whatever. But it wasn't just random. I did what is called Mickey Mouse Sync. I, had, I was taking an electronic music class at the time. One of the assignments was to take your name and cut it into half-inch pieces on audio tape and put half-inch pieces of leader in between it and make a loop out of it. And so we'd take that tape loop and we'd play it and it'd go ba 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 And then you'd run that into an ARP synthesizer. You'd manipulate it, record it on one track of a tape recorder. Uh-huh. Then I'd take that and feed it back into the ARP with the tape loop. And I'd record that in, onto another track. Then I'd take those two tracks and I'd feed it in back in with another track until finally I had four tracks of a, like a five-minute piece of music. Yeah. That was all my original thing. Then I took that and transferred it to magnetic film. Then I put it on a Steenbeck and counted it off frame by frame so that I knew where each beep, bop, boop, bop, boop, wank wow. sound was per frame. So till I had 15 pages of numbers. <laughs> then I went through and as I shot it, I said, okay, this number is this frame and I'll do this here and then I'll do this here and I'll do this here. Till finally I had a five minute animated piece with artwork and it was, they were exactly synchronized like, well, it would be like lip sync except there were no lips. Yeah. And I told my professors before I did it, 
what I was going to do. And they just looked at me like I was, <laughs> but then I did it and they, they came back and they saw it and they were like, wow, you did just what you said you were going to do. And I said, yeah, that's what I told you I was going to do. You, know? <laughs> you kind of just blew my mind. Is, it, is this film anywhere online that could be seen? It's not. I should put it online. I've got copies of both those films. You know, they're, they're old SD transfers. I probably should take them over to a photo camera somewhere and have a good HD transfers done of them and do a DI on them because yeah. they're not ones like a minute long and ones like five minutes long. So they wouldn't be that expensive to do. So I should do that. Do it now while that service is still readily available. You yeah, know, yeah, I, I need to. I know all the technicians to do it because I, I use a lot of film transfers and DIs and yeah, you know yeah. I know some great colorists and things like that and so well I think that's something we can talk about later but there's sort of the weird crossover of like a film legacy versus a digital legacy and if you make stuff on film that you don't have on video especially those early days a lot of times people just don't have those early films and I feel like some people I'll talk to who are filmmakers they kind of want to move beyond that. It's like they don't want to look at it. But I sort of feel like you put a lot of work into it. It's part of your creative legacy. Stick it on Vimeo. Stick it on YouTube. Stick it on your website. Who knows how many people it's going to be interesting to. But it might like just hearing this story of how you made that thing. Like now I want, I'm dying to see what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a lost art because we're all spoiled jerks now. And we have After Effects. And we have, you know, all these abilities to do what you so painstakingly did. We could sort of come up with a digital way to do it. But it wouldn't look anything like what you did, I assume. Because what you did was so organic. Well, there are things that you you can do on an animation standard that you can do with film that you can't do any other way. Yeah. That's the thing is people say, well, just do it on a computer and just do this and just do that. Well, it doesn't work that way all the time. Yeah. Here's a, a, a good point because a lot of people now, when they work, they're like, oh, how many megapixels do I have? How much of this do I have or that? Or I can't do this because I don't have this camera. I don't, you know, just do it. You know, don't sit there and fiddle around about what you can't do. Worry about what you can do. Yeah. And do it. It's so easy for people in modern day to get hung up on, got to have this or I've got to have, you know, 4K or I've got to have, you don't have to have it. Yeah. You got to have an idea. That's what you got to have. You have an idea and then you execute it. And it's so easy to get hung up in the technology that you never do anything because you're too worried about, I can't do it until I have this or that. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of technology to meet whatever venue you're going to send it to. But really, it's more about your eye and your subject and how you think you should do that. I spend a lot of time making video cameras not look like video cameras. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, I remember I heard Caleb Deschanel one time, and they asked him, this was in the early days of video cameras, they said, why don't you use video cameras? He says, because if I shoot it with a video, it'll look like Jeopardy, you know? <laughs> but now with the new cameras, you can actually do a lot. And if you approach the older cameras, like, you can make those look pretty good too, but each thing has its own characteristics, and yeah, it's not about a camera. It's not about how lucky you are to have whatever lens combination or any. It's about telling a story. And if you can tell a story properly, people are going to watch it. That's what it boils down to. I mean, they made a movie called Celebration and made it with a palm quarter. People watched it. Yeah, it was great. Made me cry. Yeah. You were getting some acclaim for having directed this animation. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you stay on an animation track? Why did you not stay on a directing track? Why did you instead move into cinematography specifically? I was an animator in college. I had my animated thesis for my master's and all that. And um, then I formed an animation company and I started doing animated commercials in Columbia, South Carolina. And it was around the same time that digital effects were coming out. And I had to deal with advertising agencies. I'd go to the advertising agency and they'd say, well, you, you know, we want you to do this or that. And, um... I'd say, okay, it's going to, you know, 10 seconds would take me about two weeks of 14 hour days to do. And they'd say, we want to come watch you animate. What? Yeah. They wanted to come watch me. And I I was like, 
you're going to watch paint dry, literally. <laughs> you know, because you'd have white gloves and cells and yeah, yeah. and you'd drawing and rotoscoping and all this kind of stuff. They wanted to sit there and watch me and make suggestions while I did it. Oh, boy. You know, and this this did not go over well. Yeah. And it was not well received by me, not because I was being mean or anything, but because it's a very labor-intensive task. I, this is, I think, a failure of film schools in general, is they don't actually teach you how to work for a client. Yeah. And I feel like you're going to go out into the real world. I mean, probably right out of film school, you're going to go be a PA or mm-hmm. an assistant, something or other. But if you're ingenious enough to direct your own stuff or produce your own stuff, mm-hmm. you're eventually going to end up one day with a client. And I don't know anyone who is ready for that when it happens. Well, I mean, some clients are dreams and some clients aren't. Yeah. The other thing was it was right when digital effects were first starting to come out, and they weren't very good yet. Yeah. But the, they had these little boxes where they could do something similar to what I could do. It wasn't nearly mm-hmm. as good. Video toaster? Or was this before the video toaster? Before the video toaster, but it was it was 79 or 80. They, they could do things for like 50 bucks that I would have to charge several thousand dollars for because it would take so much of my time. And then I would shoot the film. The nearest lab to me was in Atlanta which was three and a half hours away. So I'd have to take the film in the car, drive to Atlanta, be there when the lab opened up, put it through, then go over to the transfer house, then uh, put it on the, the flying spot scanner to transfer it over to, to tape to bring it back to them. Well, they were like, why should we pay for the flying spot scanner? Because, you know, our the television station has this wonderful film chain, uh, you know, and, and then, then, then they'd come in with their little Pantone chips and they say, well, the color doesn't match. I said, that's because you did it on that film chain. And then they'd say, well, and, and it's got dirt. You know, you gave us a dirty piece of film. I said, no, that's because the film chain is dirty. Uh, they just didn't know any better. Is a film chain not basically the equivalent of like running it through a projector that projects on like a little thing in a video camera, just films it off of yeah, that? Yeah, there's thing? a projector and there's a camera. It's out there in the middle of the control room. Mm-hmm. And the camera's usually not very good because all they really need to do is put news stories on and off of VNF film. Yeah. So, which is video news film. And uh, there was a, a lab in town that would, that would process the VNF because the football team used it. At, at the University of South Carolina to, to study their plays and stuff. So they would shoot yeah. they would shoot um, 16 millimeter and then they'd rush it through this. They basically had a, a place where you could get an image. Yeah, and would it screw up the film that you'd created? Would it, or uh, Yeah, it could, it could scratch your film. It could, it, but, I mean, especially if you had something with a lot of pastel colors or something like that, it, it would put these hairs and dirt and stuff all over it because the chain, even though they said, oh, we, he, we had him clean the film chain. Well, it doesn't matter. It's not a system that would be uh, worthy of, of that sort of thing. And where the flying, the ranks and tail flying spot scanner was the, yeah. was the top thing at the time. And so we, I usually either used that or used a Bosch, uh, FL 60, which was another film chain that was very similar to the flying spot scanner. And these were really high quality devices that would give at the time the best quality transfers. Whereas now we use what's called a spirit data cine or something along yeah. those lines. But at this time, that was what was available. And then you'd go to one inch tape, which was the biggest tape format at the time. We, we either had quad three quarter inch or one inch. Uh-huh. And so that's what we do. And then I'd drive that back over and hand it off. I'd make several copies of it and I'd hand it off to the client. I'd say, here's your copies and I'll keep a master and I'll keep the film. Because if they ever wanted more, they wouldn't destroy it you know, yeah, or yeah. lose it. Which they did. They lost it a lot, you know. So I kind of got fed up with this. And about this time, I got a, a notice in the mail that, that Garrett Brown was having a steady cam school in Miami. Mm-hmm. And this was in uh, 
1982, December 17th, 1982. So Steadicam is relatively new at that time. Yes. I, I was, you know, I, I used to talk with Garrett about that I was in the second wave, but he said, no, you're really kind of in the first wave of Steadicam operators because there weren't that many people that had done it then. There, I mean, you can count everybody when I learned on two hands. Wow. And I went to that school and in the same school with me in Miami was, was Bob Uland, who became one of the top Steadicam guys, and he lived in Orlando. Then there was uh, Jacques Mange from Paris, and he went back to Paris and became France's premier operator. And then I went back to South Carolina and started making redneck <laughs> blow em up and shoot em up movies. Nice. Yeah. Well, the, what, well, like what, what kind of stuff? Well, the first movie I worked on was, was a movie called Chain Gang, and it was in 3D nice. on film. And um, St- 3D Steadicam, that had to have been a, a not light rig. This one, we used Chris Condon's stereo vision lens on an Airy 2C. So the camera was light, but the lens was a, a big wide thing that looked about the size of a ping pong paddle, but a little wider and about 10 times as thick. And it took two images side by side, flipped them over, and put them on one frame of film in 235 format. So it was like a double technoscope sort of thing. Huh. Like if you had a two-perf camera, that would be technoscope. But this one took two images and put them on top in a regular 35 gate. Oh, that's cool. And then when the film would go and be projected, Chris Condon, who started Century Precision Optics, had figured out a way to take this. He made a projection lens that would take these two images, flip them back around and project them in 3D back on the screen. And so it was an ingenious system and you only needed one camera to do it. And was this like, because I remember in the early 80s, there was kind of a wave of 3D movies. There was Jaws 3D, Friday the 13th, Part 3 and 3D. There were a bunch of them. Was it part of that wave? Yeah, it was around that time. And and, uh, it even got uh, like Russell Carpenter came on, um, I think it was America Online at that time. And he was asking because he was going to shoot uh, Terminator 2 3D. It, well, it was it was a ride for um, oh, a, oh. for for Universal. He was asking because um, they wanted to do Steadicam, what would be a good choice? And I said, well, you know, this Chris Condon's lenses would be a a, a good choice for this. And and I got called to work on that, but at, at the time I was in South Carolina doing something else and I couldn't do it. I think Bob Bob Uland ended up doing it. That actually worked out fairly well for them because they had like the big. Heinz rig at that time, which is a 3D camera that's the size of this table. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a massive thing. So, I mean, long story short, back to where we started, I learned how to do uh, Steadicam with Garrett Brown, Randy Nolan, and Toby Phillips. Uh-huh. Those were my three instructors in Miami in 1982, December 17th. And I, I took a week-long workshop, and then I came back to South Carolina, and then I worked on the Chain Gang film. <laughs> And the way that I got that job was I'd only been through the week-long workshop, and I hadn't really done that much. But the film company had gotten a Steadicam in, and they didn't know how to work it. And so they got my name, and I went down to Myrtle Beach where they were filming out on a, on a little island called Sandy Island out in the, in the marsh off of Myrtle Beach. And I helped them adjust their Steadicam rig, and I got the job. That's cool. And that was kind of my start. And I, this was for a guy named Earl Owensby. EO Pictures in out of Shelby, North Carolina. And I did about five or six pictures for them. About this time, Dino DeLaurentis had opened up a shop in Wilmington, North Carolina. I remember, yeah. And I started hitting them up for work. And my reel consisted of me with my Steadicam chasing my little brother around the backyard. <laughs> and I, I went all the way around the house and then crawled over a fence. And that was my reel. It was one three-quarter inch tape. I still have the tape somewhere. Oh, that's cool. I only got one copy of it. but Put it on Vimeo. Put it on Vimeo. I need to do that. So I sent that tape to to Wilmington, North Carolina, to Joe Dunton Cameras. They'd done Cat's Eye and a, and a few other films. I didn't get those, but then they finally decided to hire me, and they said, we're doing this film called Blue Velvet. You want to do it? And I said, sure. 
and I didn't know what it was. And it, it just turned out the time that I had to do it, I was working on an Arnold Owensby film that we were traveling down to a Hilton Head to shoot. And on the travel day was the day they wanted me. So I went down and made a dog leg through Wilmington, uh-huh. got there, got my call sheet under the door. I said, well, let's see who's directing this thing. And it said, David Lynch. Well, David Lynch at that time was kind of a hero of ours because we'd seen Dune and we thought that was a really cool film. You know, if, if we could work for anybody in the movie business, I'd like to work for David Lynch. So I, I stayed up all night staring in the mirror telling myself, you can do this. You can do it. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and then I get there. Well, not only that, but David Lynch has a similar background to you. Like he started as a painter. His earliest films were basically animations. Yes, he did a bunch of animations and he never told me this, but it was it was more like there were things he couldn't paint. And so he made films. Yeah, yeah. I ended up getting this film and, and I'd never shot anamorphic before. I'd had a BL on the Steadicam before, but I never shot anamorphic. So I put a th- an Airflex 35 BL on the Steadicam BL3 with a big seven pound Joe Dutton anamorphic lens on it. The first shot that I did in the movie, well, I did two shots. Kyle McLaughlin walking up the stairs with the bug sprayer going up to Dorothy Valance apartment. Yep. And then he busts out of a door coming back down and he, he runs into Laura Dern on the land and they run down the stairs talking about the key. Yep. The thing was, is in Steadicam school, they said, well, the Steadicam doesn't tilt very well. You try to use the boom because that works much better. Well, I took one look at those stairs and I couldn't boom. Uh-huh. I had to come in with a hard tilt. and So I, I adjusted it and I had this big camera. We were about five stories up on a, on like a fire escape sort of thing. And usually we'd want to have spotters, but there was no place for a spotter. We had no video transmitter. And if I tripped, I went over the rail and five stories straight down. Oops. The weight of the camera system with the lens and the big camera and everything, I had to stop two steps above the step I wanted to stop on because I, even if I dug my heels in, I would bounce down two steps from all the weight pulling me down the staircase. Ugh. And I had David Lynch and Fred Elms running down the stairs behind me. <laughs> So Kyle comes busting out the door. He sees Laura. I whip the camera around. I tilt it hard, and I start running. And I run down, and they stop on the landing. I bounce two steps in the, into that landing. And then they take off and start going down the next steps. I have to run down the last step, come around the corner, run down the rest of the steps, and then bounce in two steps into the last mark without shaking the camera or any of this. Mm-hmm. And then they run out. It went really well. Do you remember how many takes it took to get it right? I don't. It was six or seven takes, probably. Not too bad. Not too bad. So then I finished that up. I drove down to, to Hilton Head. I, I finished shooting. They called me down in Hilton Head. They somehow tracked me down in Hilton Head. There had been a, a some sort of issue with the camera. I said, come back. we got to do it again. So I drove back up to uh, Wilmington, and then I shot all day with those guys again. We did it all over again. Uh-huh. And then um, I drove all the way across the width of North Carolina, and had a night shoot that night. On a different project? On the same Earl Winsby oh. film that I was on before. Oh, 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 okay. And so I went, you know, from like, I was up for 24 hours of working, you know. Oof. It, it, it was not an easy thing, but it was, we did it and it was, it was good. And, and on the, on the, the new Blu-ray release of Blue Velvet that just came out a year or so ago, if you look under the, the special features, you can see the original takes that were underexposed. David found them in a warehouse up in Seattle, Washington. Oh, wow. And did a transfer of them. And he said they were grainy because of the issue that had been with the camera. But he put them on there. So you can you can actually see the original takes. And then you can see the, the new ones that we did that are actually in the movie. I always wonder this when you're working on a movie like Blue Velvet. Did, was there an aura around that production? Did you guys know you were working on something that was different than most other projects that was maybe going to have some shelf life? 
Well, you could tell it was a cool thing. But and it was like David at the time, he was very young. And when he would say action, he wouldn't just say action. He would say action. Mm-hmm. It was like it, it was like a magical moment. Just to, and, I, you know, I was young and green and I was learning and it was a lot of fun. But I mean, I always tell people, you know, I talk at a lot of universities and things now. And I go try to because I remember what it was like when I was in school, when somebody would come and speak with me. And so I go and lecture. And I always tell people, you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you get a prince. Yeah, but it sounds like you didn't have to kiss that many frogs before you got to work with David Lynch. I mean, before you got to work on Blue Velvet. How yeah, many, yeah. How but, many movies in were you at that point? I was about six movies in. That's not too bad. No, it, 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 it was, it's amazing. But, you know, you never know what the movie's going to be. Exactly. You but know, that, but, you, that, but you, that's you, what I'm wondering, because, like, to me, like, I've, I watched Blue Velvet probably about a year ago is the most recent time I've watched it. And mm-hmm. as Ilya told you, I'm a giant horror movie fanatic. Mm-hmm. And I think Blue Velvet might be one of the most terrifying movies ever made. Oh, yeah. More than most horror movies. And mm-hmm. and the character that uh, Dennis Hopper plays is one of the most terrifying movie villains ever. Frank. Because you just don't know what the fuck this guy is going to do. Your brain cannot wrap around what is going to happen next with this person. And that scene, you know, where they're outside in the cars and he puts mm-hmm. the lipstick on. And says, oh, you want a love letter from Frank? That whole thing, yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty. <laughs> that scene yeah. is just, in my opinion, is like one of the most terrifying scenes in movie history and I actually like sat there and looked at it and I even looked like that movie very intentionally crosses the line at a certain point mm-hmm. and the coverage switches sides and mm-hmm. stuff and I don't know if you were there for any of that stuff but no I didn't I didn't work on that scene I mean this has never been told to me but I heard a rumor that that Kyle was supposed to originally wake up in the lumber yard with his pants around his ankles I've heard that too yeah yeah and that they decided not to do that for whatever reason but <laughs> I mean it was plenty terrifying the way it is now it's a really just a, a great film. And if you read the script, it's shot exactly as it's scripted. You know? Yeah, yeah. And David was really great about that. When we did Wild at Heart, the movie's almost exactly the way it's scripted, except the guy in the wheelchair, when, when the guy wrecks the motorcycle, that's actually how the script opens. When you read the script, it starts out, a, motor, a Japanese motorcycle screaming straight from hell. <laughs> that's, that's the opening lines of the script. The guy wrecks his motorcycle, and the guy in the wheelchair rolls up and says, same thing happened to me last year, man. Same thing happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the movie opened in, in the script, which yeah. they put that further into the movie when it, when they actually did it. So you've worked on, starting with Blue Velvet, you've worked on most of David Lynch's projects, correct? I did Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and some commercial work. Mm-hmm. And the Duran Duran live to uh, internet, too, because we, we went and shot plates for that, for all the machine work. Oh, cool. David is hands down my favorite director I've ever worked with, and the most loyal person I've ever worked with in the business as well. Yeah, he's kept bringing you back. I didn't do Straight Story because they didn't have any steady cam in it. And I didn't do Inland Empire because it was shot with a PD-150. They didn't really need me. And now on the new Twin Peaks, I didn't work on the new Twin Peaks because I stopped doing steady cam. And so he always calls me Steady Cam Dan. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I went to the 20th anniversary of Blue Velvet. It was at a theater in Westwood. I didn't tell David I was coming out. I just sat in the front row because I saw the chair he was going to be sitting in because he was going to introduce the film. And he, he stood up and he was talking and he looked around the crowd and then all of a sudden he saw me and went, Steady Cam Dan! And he just stopped out of his talk and everything. <laughs> he made me stand up and introduce me to the crowd. It was really pretty cool. That's cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of a kind, man. Oh, he's the best a wonderful human being and he's really great at taking little pieces of humanity and assembling them in something interesting in addition to being an amazing painter and and the premier advocate for meditation so did blue velvet was that the thing that kind of springboarded you into more mainstream that uh, was my big break yeah 
And and I didn't even so realize six, it at the time. Six movies in, you had your big break. That's not bad. I was very lucky. Yeah. That's a lot of this business is luck. You have to be there when the check's written. You got to be able to cash it. Yeah. But I know a lot of people with a lot of talent that never get that break, you know. I think people end up getting to do things that they're meant to do, whatever that is. And I'm not saying that anything I've done is any great shakes, but it's like you go out and you, you do your best and you got to see that one of the real keys is you never believe the publicity or about anything that anybody says about you. Of course. I approach every project like it's my first project and I've never done anything before. And I have to prove myself. I do it on purpose. So I have to prove myself all over again each time. Yeah. Because if you start thinking that you, you're you're some hot stuff, you get too big for your britches and you fall on your face. That's the right attitude, you know. After Blue Velvet, like what doors did that open for you? What were your next big steps? At the time, I didn't realize any door had opened. I just went back to South Carolina and yeah. I never moved to Wilmington because if I here, here's the deal. If I lived in South Carolina and I drove to Wilmington to do jobs, Dino would put me up and pay me mileage. Oh, but if I moved into North Carolina, if, even if I moved to the opposite side of North Carolina, I was considered a local and I had to put myself up and get, and I was responsible <laughs> for my own gas. So I stayed in South Carolina and drove back and forth Yeah, and you know, I had a diesel car and so I actually made money on the mileage. So. <laughs> That's so funny. And then, so, so I went back there and I did my little things and the next movie that I got out of, uh, Dino was, um, one called Raw Deal with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh yes. I know it well. I went up and did that and people were saying, Oh, we saw that stuff you did for Blue Velvet. It was so great, you know. And I hadn't seen any of the footage or anything at that point. Yeah. I just, and they 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 really liked it. And so I I didn't actually see it until the movie was released. What we'd done, yeah. It was when Arnold was first starting out. He only thing he'd done is Conan the Barbarian, which was like really the perfect thing for him, you know, because he stood around and he looked cute and he had a yeah. sword and. And he looked all manly and, and he grunted a lot, you know, and that yeah. was that was like he hadn't done Terminator yet. He could have done Terminator, but I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Raw Deal was was a, a fun thing. That's where I met Alex Thompson, the DP from English DP, mm-hmm. and I ended up doing another film called Mr. Destiny with him. And he was just a lovely, perfect English gentleman. Uh-huh. Like if he had to open up past a two eighty, he'd come around and apologize to all the focus pullers. He was that kind of guy. <laughs> you know, I just sit there and and watch what Alex did. And learn and try to figure out what he'd done because when my Steadicam wasn't working, I was f- free to you know kind of do what I wanted, but I would usually be on stage watching what was happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, trying to figure out why he was doing it. I mean, that's how you learn. I mean, when I when I go in and I, and I talk to students now, I'm like, I got this technique. It's called eyes open, mouth shut. <laughs> and you go in and because if somebody and the, the whole theory behind this is if, is, if, if you ask somebody a question and they tell you what they do, you'll say, oh, that's why they do it. And it'll go right out of your head and you'll never forget it. But if you have to sit there and look and figure out why they're doing something for whatever reason, it'll stay with you forever. Huh. That's the whole thing of that. But, you know, I got to do some pretty cool stuff. But one day I was out in the parking lot at DEG Studios, which is now uh, Screen Gems in Wilmington. And um, Arnold came walking up to me because I had the steady cam on and he he came over and he, he grabbed the steady cam. He started moving it around like Ugh. this. And he says, does this hurt your back? And I like, yeah, when you move it around like that, it does, you know, because <laughs> he was, you know, he was. Yeah. Kind of, My hat's uh, off to steady cam guys. Uh, do you know a guy named Mike Smith? I do know Mike Smith out of Atlanta. Yeah. 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 So I, cause I started out down, down South and I worked mm-hmm. on a bunch of stuff in Mobile, Alabama and, mm-hmm. and Atlanta. And yeah. one day I asked Mike Smith, like, what's it like, you know, wearing that thing? He's like, you want to put it on? And I was mm-hmm. like, sure. I was like twenty. 
three years old and he put it he put it on and they were using movie cams on this film that we were working on and put the whole the whole rig on and it was like suddenly all the weight of the universe went to my low back and i'm mm-hmm. like i could not do this for five seconds like i don't know how he does it you Obviously, gotta be able to do it for 18 hours a day too yeah you gotta train you know and you think about people who work on shows that are all steady cam like mm-hmm. that's got to be outrageously painful like you just got to be in amazing shape to pull it off yeah, Ted Churchill had a great saying for what it was like after you'd done a day of Steadicam. Is you, he said, you, after you do a lot, enough Steadicam, you'll be standing there shivering, uh, shivering like a chihuahua passing a peach pit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that really sets it all out because it was not uncommon for me to lose five pounds in a day of Steadicam. I believe it, yeah. I could eat as much water, eat as many candy bars, or force as many calories down as I could. And I'd still lose five pounds. That's crazy. The level of exhaustion after a day of steady cam was such that it's, it's like you'd be dragging yourself home and pulling yourself into the bathtub, just trying to get yourself into bed so you could pass out. Yeah. I'm talking about doing 18 hours a day of steady cam on things, you know. And, and with a 35 millimeter camera that probably weighs, you know, what, 20 something pounds at least. Oh, yeah. Some of them more than that. And then. And the, the great thing about those days, though, was it was film. So every four minutes, they had to reload, so you got to set it down. Yeah. Now with digital, I mean, the two reasons I stopped doing Steadicam in 2010 were 3D, because I had to carry two everything. Oof. And um, they don't cut. They'll just go back to one, back to one, back to one. And so you never get to set it down in between takes. All you need to do is just set it down for just a few seconds, and then you're ready to go again. Yeah. But if you never get to take it off to let your muscles recover for that little bit of time, it becomes just brutality. And then some people want to have you stand there while they're lighting or, oof, or, you know, it's, it's, it, you become a human tripod and that's no fun. You can't just put it on a stand while they're lighting it? No, they want to see, some of them want you to see you hold it, you know. <sighs> and I think they do it just for the fun of it, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, anyway, anyway, that's kind of out of my life at this point now. So, but I did it for 28 years. So that was long enough. Yeah, yeah. When we had Charles Pappard in here and he did Steadicam for a long time and he he basically was like, I want to be a DP and, mm-hmm. and he got rid of his Steadicam rig and said like, you know, people would call him to work and they would think they were getting a DP and a, and a Steadicam operator. And he's like, no, sorry, I don't. I sold it. I don't have it anymore. Yeah, that's what I did. I yeah. sold it. So like cold turkey, I just stopped. Cold turkey went in to do DP work. I've sold it so I couldn't go back to it. Yeah. You know, sink or swim. Fear's the great motivator. Go out there and <laughs> dive in and do it. And you, you're going to do it or you're going to die trying, you know. So it may be jumping all over. And I, I do like going sequentially through stuff. But but let's talk about quitting it. So, like, what was the moment that made you decide to quit? Here's the, the main reason. In 2010, November of 2010, my mother died. I said, now's the time for change in life. If either I'm going to do it or I'm, you know, it's not going to get done. And I was already switching DP later than other guys had done it. But I said, I'm going to do it. Had you been thinking about it for a while at that point? Well, I'd done some of it over the, the years before, you know. So, yeah. I mean, I'd shot a, a movie here or there, things like that. But I said, you know, now I'm just going to cold turkey do it. Uh-huh. And, you know, there there's no other way. It's, it's like I never was a smoker, but, I mean, that's kind of like quitting smoking. You know, if you're going to quit, you got to quit. Yeah, yeah. Not that Steadicam is anywhere like smoking, but, it's a, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of a, a better analogy, but, you know. If you're well, gonna, it's if like you, moving to another city. It's like changing careers. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, you, you had built your career on the Steadicam stuff, and we'll get to stuff like Scream, like, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most iconic Steadicam scenes possibly ever made so that is fascinating that you would that you would pull the cord but also i completely understand why 18 hours standing with a, a red one if that's what they were using you know those things are freaking boat anchors yeah. on a steady cam like that would kill anybody 
Well, I mean, it, it wasn't easy to do because I was making three grand a day at that time. Yeah. I knew what that meant. It meant starting at the bottom again. You don't start halfway up. You don't start, you go right to the bottom of the ladder and you start climbing all over again. Uh-huh. And I was at the top of my game with the steady cam. I mean, I could have done it for another 10 years or so if I really wanted to push it, but I decided no. It was a difficult decision, but it's a decision that I'm very happy that I made. Were there certain things that you'd been wanting to do? You'd been working with all of these world-class DPs for all these years. What was it that was kind of screaming to you about moving into into that art form? Well, I mean, I could have just hung the steady cam up and just become a straight operator and probably continued to work with a lot of these great, I mean, I've been really, really lucky to work with some amazing cameramen. Yeah. And being a camera operator or a steady cam operator is the best seat in the house to watch what a cameraman's doing because you see what they do and then you look through the camera and you see the result. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'd worked for a lot of other people. I kind of wanted to work for myself for a change. I worked my whole career. I was, I've been very lucky to work in what I call the inner circle, which is like the DP and the director and the, and the operator. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've been in that circle my entire career, and so I knew what that was. And that's kind of where I wanted to remain to be. I wanted to, to, to be able to make some decisions that I wasn't being able to make as a steady cam operator. Although I got to make a lot of decisions. I mean, you'd go in, here, here's what would happen. You'd, you'd go in, you'd either, they'd either say, here's what you're going to do, or what do you think about this, or, then they'd, or they'd let you just go and, and plan something out and then do it. I mean, like David, one of the things that David would do with me is in Wild at Heart, there was, there's a scene where Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern go to the old Palomino nightclub in North Hollywood, and he wears his snakeskin jacket, the symbol of individuality and personal freedom. Yes. And he, they go in there, and um, and the speed metal band's playing behind him. In the I stage. had no idea that they shot that in North Hollywood. Like, you know, I, I lived in Orlando when I saw that in the theater, and I yeah. just, that, you know, to me, it was in some mythical David Lynch land. It was a cowboy nightclub here in the valley. Uh-huh. It's called the Palomino. It's, they tore it down a few years ago, but it was it was like an icon of North Hollywood for huh. a long time. Basically, I shot it with the with the Panavision version of the Steadicam called a Panaglide, mm-hmm. but my Steadicam suit and arm. David would say, okay, go out there and get it. And so I just went out and shot one side of the scene and I'd come back. He and Fred would say, what'd you get? I said, well, I got this and this. Okay, go out and get what you didn't get before. (laughs) And they trusted me to go out and shoot it. Every once in a while, there'd be a suggestion like get more of the metal band in there or something like that. But it was really, it was kind of my decision as to what to do. Yeah, yeah. And the whole scene is my my Steadicam work except for like one, I think one really low angle shot and maybe a high angle shot. And the rest of that is all me. That's awesome. It, It was really cool, you know, the whole fight with the punk and the, I know the scene, and yeah. that's got to be just outrageously empowering, too, to have a director of David Lynch's stature, and that's probably about as, like, he was at the top of his powers when he was making that. I mean, I got to shoot the scene where the guy gets his hand blown off, and Isabella plays this paradita, this Hispanic lady that drives a convertible, and she comes up and picks the guys up after Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage go in to rob the feed store. <laughs> And then the dog runs down the street with the hand that's been I blown. I remember that. That's like the one, my one takeaway from the movie when I saw it was that scene. I had a big Panavision anamorphic, the, an E-series 35 millimeter that we shot a lot of that scene with. And then, went, then I had to walk through the aftermath on apple boxes to get up high enough to get over all the blood and the guts and stuff on the floor. Oh, man. And in Willem Dafoe, they gave him these dentures to wear yeah, that he... looked like elephant toenails. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was pretty funny, you know. That was a great experience because I did a lot of work on that film. You know, Blue Velvet, I did a little bit. Wild at Heart, I did a lot. Mm-hmm. And then they even put me on like a C camera a couple of times, you know. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so I got to, like when, when Defoe gets his head blown off, 
and um, it goes up in there and it comes down and hit my camera right on the map box. It's a big rubber head and it hit right on the map box and almost drove the viewfinder through my eye. It hit so hard. <laughs> it was pretty wild. <laughs> what was the draw? Like what, what excited you about being a DP at that point? One was I wanted to change. But the other thing was, is I had ideas of things that I could do. And I realized as I was making these films that filmmaking is not that difficult. It's actually very simple. You just take the camera with the right lens and put it in the right place and put the lights in the right place and put the actors in the right place and you got a movie. But it took me years and years and years to figure out where the right place was. Yeah. <laughs> and I worked under, you know, some really great people and some very difficult taskmasters sometimes. But I learned, you know, the lens goes here. This is where the eyeline goes. This is where, you know, but I'd get to talk with Alex Thompson. I'd say, Alex, you know, why are you doing this? And why are you doing that? And when I wasn't eyes open, mouth shut, it was like I would see the ways that he, he lit night exteriors with Dino lights with 24 bulbs on each one of them, you know, and massive generators. And we did like one scene in, in Raw Deal. Arnold goes in and blows up an oil refinery. And we had Dino lights lit, lit the oil, whole oil refinery like a beautiful portrait. Uh-huh. And then Joe Lombardi was our effects guy. He pumped 2,000 gallons of gasoline into the set. And as Arnold rides out the gate on the motorcycle, he lit the match, you know? Wow. Or he, you know, he fired that gasoline off by whatever method he'd used. Uh-huh. And a wall of flame about 200 yards wide and 100 yards tall came yeah. roaring out of the set. <laughs> it's so hot, it melted the filters in the camera. Yeah, I was going to say that you must have felt that. That must have been in- intense. Oh, it was, it was very intense. Send your eyebrows? Well, uh, we couldn't stay on the... We, we set the ca- cameras, the ones I had in the danger zone. I Just turned them on and got out of there, and then, yeah. they, then they hit it. And it was a very powerful scene. It looked it looked amazing. Like, one of the stock questions I always ask everybody, and, it, and it's out of genuine curiosity, is when you're shooting a scene as a DP, which do you prioritize? Are you thinking about the scene in terms of composition and then lighting into that composition, or are you thinking of how to create the lighting and then finding the composition within the lighting. I always ask that, but I, I think I'm especially interested to hear your answer to that question because steady, you know, you did Steadicam for so long. Did that fix you on composition or when you shoot today, when you're DPing, are you more intrigued by the lighting or like which occurs to you first? To tell the story. Mm-hmm. My whole job is to serve the script. I don't think about the other things. I think about one, I mean, I tell students, if you were building a house, the script would be the foundation of your house. Yeah. If you got a good script, your house won't fall down. My job is, you know, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be anything in particular as long as it serves a story. Now, it inevitably will have aesthetic value. Yeah. But if you can make a, a movie where the photography does not fit the story, you failed. If you make a, a movie where the audience notices the photography more than is engrossed in the movie, you've failed. If you get noticed at all, you've, you've failed because the the whole key of this is to, to be true to the script and be true to the story. Yeah. I made a career out of moving the camera and I found the more I moved it, the less I wanted to move it. But <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, because what happens is nowadays people move cameras for absolutely no motivated reason. You'll, you'll be seeing a film and the camera will be flying all over the place and there'll be two people talking at a table or what, you know, if you do that, you give away your power. That's no offense to network television, but it's the way, you know, like the average uh, network uh, police procedural keeps a, you know, very, it started in commercials. 
It but started, like, but like expository, like I feel like I you see that technique where they have two cameras on dollies going in different directions and they're cutting, 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 and you know. Well, that's because they, you know, their script's no good. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. It's like if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you've got a, a proper script and an interesting story, you could plant the camera in the corner, and it will make no difference. I mean, Jim Jarmusch does this all the time. Yeah, well, even like what you were saying with the celebration where it's like actively looks kind of assy, but that actually works for that story. If you need an assy camera to, to tell a story... Yeah. Then that's and it's true to the story, then that's what you do. But I guess I'm I'm kind of asking the question like you've got the script, you you're working with the director, you already have the story that you're there to tell. Mm-hmm. We're here to shoot the scene. The scene is you and me, you know, doing an interview here. When you look at the script, are you thinking about the composition of the shots or are you thinking about the way it's going to be lit first? Which occurs to you first? What ha- occurs to me first if it's a good script? And I mean even well, unless it's so awful that I can't really grasp it but when I read I've read so many scripts now that when I read the script I watch the movie yeah I mean I don't think of a shot I don't think of a light I think of I'm watching the movie and if it's, if, if the script is really good I see the film as I'm reading it it may not be the same film the director sees yeah so that's where we have to come in because I mean I'll, I'll read that script I'll read that script and then I'll meet with the director and I'll say you know I read your script I like it this, these are the things I like about it. This is when, when I read it. At this point, I saw this. At this point, I saw that. I said, you know, it may not be what you see. So this is where we have to come in and we have to have a meeting of the minds and, and find out what goes where. Because, you know, ultimately, it's your movie. And I'm here to make your movie. Yeah. But this is, when I read it, this was my initial impression of what it is. Like, this scene was this way. This scene was this way. The whole movie, as it comes together, it has this feel. I started out playing bass in rock bands and, and when I was younger and, and I was in the high school band and I was, but I, I played while I was in college, we made money playing in rock bands. And when I was a little kid, my mother put me in the playpen and would put on classical music. So I recognize all the tunes. And well, when you read a script, a movie's like a piece of music. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. There's fast parts, there's slow parts, there's loud parts, there's soft parts. And they all come together to make this this flowing piece of art and visually you can come through and you can treat it like a piece of music mm-hmm. but in a visual manner and then it'll come together and it'll make sense and, and it'll it'll work as a, a continuous unit i think of films that way and is like like a piece of music and i mean when i was doing steadicam i, I was really good at doing music videos and stuff because I, I could feel the beat i knew when to move the camera i knew when to stop the camera i could accentuate the music with my camera so you're kind of finding the dance of it yeah well i mean steadicam is like a dance mm-hmm. your steadicam is your dance partner how did your technique as a steadicam operator change over the years you said you did it for 28 years 28 years wow how would you approach steadicam differently two or three years in i think i thought i had this thing figured out <laughs> and i said oh yeah i know how to do this this is pretty cool you know and about it was that was about the time i really started doing a lot of films with it because the first two years you're kind of still feeling yourself out. But, you know, I thought, well, I, I figured this thing out now. I know how to do it. Well, then it turns around and bites you. And every, every time that you think you've figured it out, you learn something new about it. Yeah. And by the end of the 28 years, I was stopping, but I thought, well, now I'm just starting to get good at it, you know? So what happens is, you know, when you're young and you're very physically acute, your skill level is not as good. But as you get older, you make up for that with skill and finesse that you've learned over the years as to how to do it. Every year you get older, you have to work twice as hard to stay where you once were. My abilities got better just from the experience of using it 
but also from working with the great people that I got to work with. And I really have had an amazing career as a Steadicam operator just because of the people that I've gotten to be involved with and well, be around. And to save our listeners the time of going to IMDb, who are some of the DPs you've worked with? Oh, DPs? Or directors, actually. Oh, well, well, you know, David Lynch. Obviously. I did two movies with Quentin Tarantino. I did two movies with Joel Schumacher. I did one, Raw Deal was John Irvin. DPs, Fred Elms, Alex Thompson, BSC, Alan Davio, uh, Maddie Lebetique, uh, Jim Hawkinson. Um, I, I can't remember all of them because I have to go on IMDb myself to remember <laughs> them. But, I mean, I've really worked with some amazing people. Did you work with Robert Richardson on any of the Tarantino films? No, but Robert actually used to call me and we brushed closely where we almost worked together. He called me for Snow Falling on Cedars. and love and that movie. That, I rented that movie just to see his cinematography. Yeah, he, he, he does a really good job. Yeah. And then he called me for that one he was doing with Jennifer Lopez, too, the one that took place out in the desert. I don't remember the name of that one now. Uh, U-Turn for U-turn. Oliver Stone. That was yeah. the last one he did for Oliver Stone. Yeah, that they I got called for that one, too. And for some reason, that one didn't work out. And then when I was doing um, Grindhouse with Quentin, he called me about doing the Rolling Stones movie he was doing with Scorsese up in New York. Oh, wow. You know, over the years, I got called by Spike Jones and Michael Bay and a few other people, and I, I was just so busy at that time, I couldn't do every everything everybody wanted me to do. Yeah, yeah. And and it was, you know, things have slowed down a lot now because when, when you become a DP, it takes a while to get the job, uh, not just getting the job, but you have to, like, talk about it and sometimes it'll take a year or two before the film will actually roll yeah you're in prep for a while too on it yeah you no know. i was supposed to be in china right now prepping a musical and I, that's going to take six months you know when that comes to fruition but in 3d oh wow in 3d and see that the, the first job i did with the steadicam was in 3d and then the last two jobs i did with the steadicam were in 3d but the first one was on film and the last two were on video hd yeah and I'm, to be honest, I'm not that crazy about 3D, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, if people want, want to do it, I'll, I'm, I'll do it. I mean, it, I've worked in it. So, you know, so fun. I mean, I feel like it's come a long way. And also I think that them figuring out the technologists, figuring out ways to do post conversions instead of shooting stereoscopic. Yeah. Like uh, my wife and I went and saw the new Blade Runner in 3D and mm-hmm. we hadn't intended to see it in 3D. It's such an amazing looking film and the 3D mm-hmm. effect is pretty astonishing yeah roger did a great job of photographing it and i was just a few days ago i was over at the asc uh-huh. and roger was it was was the guest and he talked about filming shooting the film and the, the interesting thing was is you know i'm not a big lut man I, I i like to set the camera up and just basically use 709 and, and log yeah. or if we use raw raw and a lot of people like to have all these different luts but you know, people are like, oh, no, you should use all the lights. Well, you know, I went in and heard Roger talk, and he said, no, I just use the one light. <laughs> and I, I, I like to keep everything consistent. And I'm like, I'm, you know, that's the same approach I had. So, you know, not to compare myself to Roger, but yeah, the at least the logic is there that I'm not like the only one who thinks this way. No, I know a lot of, like uh, Walt Lloyd, I don't know if Walt's come around into a different way of thinking, but when I worked with him about 10 years ago, that was sort of his thing was like, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he hated, he didn't hate dits, but he didn't want the dit telling him, you know, like, oh, you can't expose blah, blah, blah. He's like, Mm -hmm. what if I want the window to blow out? I want the window to blow out. You know, you don't don't tell me not to do it. Well, we don't call them dits. We call them DITs because if we call them a dit... Uh-huh. then that that's a derogatory term is it all the dits i know call themselves dits yeah no it's they they, they the the term is dit or digital information technician all right i'll remember and, that 
Yeah, and I'm um, sorry, all the dits who I just called dits because you're all DITs. <laughs> I'll take it. You can come and yell at me. I'll take all your angry emails. But I, I have one in particular that I work with on several projects, and he and I get along really well. And and uh, he'll come up and look at me, and he'll say, "You know, I always learn something when I work with you." And I'm <laughs> I'm like. Well, that's interesting because this guy's like an encyclopedia of video. You know, I mean, you, you want to give him a shout out? What's oh, Lind- Lindell Crosley and Lindell is is uh, is brilliant. But Lindell and I work really well together. I mean, I haven't done this in a while, but I usually I'll take at home. I've got a waveform monitor hooked up to my Blu-ray player, <laughs> and so when I see a movie, I've I, never done that. When I when I see a movie I like, I just take a little glance at the waveform monitor. And I say, oh. That's riding about right there. I could just bring it into, you know, Adobe Premiere and look at it on the waveform monitor. Yeah, you sure can. I should do that. I'm going to totally do that tonight. Well, see, you know, what you'll run into is you'll run into, to, especially I learned this in, in the film transfer days, in the early days, that video engineers like to have 100% and they like to have a black. Yeah. I know a lot of other DPs that do this too, but they, if they don't have 100%, they'll grab that knob and they'll crank it up till they get 100% and everything looks like crap and all, yep. all grainy and nasty. So what you do is you put like a little light bulb in the back of the set somewhere, <laughs> a bare bulb, <laughs> and that's the hundred <laughs> percent. Then you light it the way you want. That's funny. <laughs> and then a lot of the things that I, I light and I like aren't spread out across the whole waveform, and they don't have to be. I think a lot of like shooting raw is about capturing everything and then in post throwing eighty percent of it away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I shoot a lot of log. My favorite cameras right now are the Arri Alexa, Amira, and the the little Canons. Uh-huh. And and a lot of people say, oh, the little Canons. And I'm like, I like them because they look good and they're small. Like the uh, C500, C300. Well, we interviewed Jim Froman. He shoots like transparent on those cameras. Yeah. They're great looking little cameras. Yeah. I mean, they're really, and, and you know, I've shot three features on a thing called a fig rig. You know oh, yeah, I, of course. Yeah, Mike yeah. Figgis is a little steering wheel yeah. deal. And I started out I'm years a few years back of 2014, 2013, 2014. I shot the first one on the fig rig, and I, I ran into this, this director from New Zealand, and he wanted he was a street clown, and he was a national, I mean, or, or a worldwide renowned street clown teacher, and he wanted to make a movie about street clowns down on Venice Beach. Huh. And he wanted it all handheld. I said, well, we'll shoot with cannons because they're unobtrusive and we can get in, in the crowds down in Venice Beach. And I said, well, if I'm handheld, I'm either stuck on my shoulder or I'm stuck around my waist. And I don't want that. I want to be able to move like I could with a steady cam. So I took the fig rig and I put put the little Canon C300 on there. On that particular movie, we had just a regular focus in the my assistant, Steve Mann, who's been with me for almost 30 years. Oh, wow. He was pulling focus directly off the knob and trying not to shake the, the camera too much. And then this was our first attempt with the fig rig because I just uh, on a lark, I brought it with me. I had this fig rig and I said, but with that, I can go all the way from down on the ground up to over my head and do steady cam like moves all in one shot. And they, they feel handheld. It bounces a little different than handheld, but still. Yeah. And so we had this thing and we had a very small permit. We could only have 15 people on the beach at any one time, including the actors. So I would, I would go to the director and I'd say, okay, show me a rehearsal. So Steve and I'd watch a rehearsal. I'd say, okay, roll camera. We go cover the whole scene cut. Okay. You need to cover this part, this part, and this part. Okay. Bam, bam, bam. Move on. Next scene. We came in a day ahead of schedule. Nice. The other thing that we had to do was we had the street clown performances and each one of them was unique. 
And we did them out amongst the live crowds of Venice Beach. We put up the sign, say, if you enter the area, you're in the movie. And the way we handled that was I had two C-300s. And so I put myself on one. I put Steve on one, my assistant. I had Rochelle Brown, my second assistant, bump up and pull focus for me. And then I hired a bunch of other camera operators that had their own 5Ds and 7Ds and 60Ds and put them on monopods in the crowd dressed as tourists. (laughs) So... When you look at any shot in the movie, all the other cameras are in the movie, but you can't see them because they all look like tourists photographing the street clams. That's awesome. And so we'd, we'd have like eight cameras running at once, and you'd never see them even though they were in, they were in plain sight. DSLRs are grand. I mean, yeah. I, I really do love those cameras. Where you really notice the difference, though, is when you go into the DI, and the, the C300s are so much sharper than the, than the 5Ds and 70s and 60Ds Obviously. that I had to do a lot of work matching the cameras and... The, they don't handle flares as well. So I had to remove some flare stuff. But all in all, it was really quite an experience. And it, you learn a lot about what you can do and what you can get. And, uh, you know, I mean, I photograph movies that cost millions of dollars. This movie, we spent $120,000 on it for yeah, a whole yeah. feature. We wanted to get it into Sundance. We shot the whole movie in 17 days. Two days later, we had a lock. You had a lock two uh, days after the end of principal photography? Yeah, we had, we had picture lock two days after the end of principal photography. I was in the DI suite. I timed 1,600 shots in 18 hours with my colorist, Andrew Bayless, over it. He's with Wildfire Post right now. While we were doing that, the director was over with the music people working on the soundtrack, which they'd written most of the stuff on the way, but we were doing other sound stuff. The day after I finished the DI, they married the audio to it. That was on a Friday. On Saturday, they burned the Blu-rays, and on Monday was a Sundance deadline, <laughs> and we turned it in in time for a Sundance. We didn't get in, but we made the deadline. That's pretty awesome. I've shot better-looking films, but this one was actually really pretty nice considering the way we did it. Yeah, yeah. And I hadn't really no grip electric crew until we did interiors. I, I, wanted, I said, well, you know, I'll need grip and electrics out on the beach. Oh, no, you can have a card. That's what the director said. You can have a card. That's, that's all you get. That's the way we had to do it because we had that, that small permit. So, yeah, yeah, I've shot on Venice before. That can be, uh, they're, they're pretty persnickety about what you do out there. Yeah. The good thing about it was restrictions sometimes lead to creativity. Yeah. And so you do things in a different way. There's, there's a million ways to skin a cat, you know, not that I've ever skinned a cat, but I mean, <laughs> figure of speech <laughs> and, um, Southern idiom. It actually turned out pretty well because the editor was editing as we were cutting we'd break for lunch. I'd go in and say, how's it cutting? Eyeline's all good. Yeah, everything's working. It looks really great. And, um, but it would be, you know, if we had this shot or this shot, that would help. Go out and grab that shot. We, we, the way we set it up was we shot out, we figured out a place we wanted to shoot. We got permits for that place. Then right there at the, um, I think it was called the Breeze Suites in Venice. We rented a couple of rooms. One was the production office and one was the, the costume area. When we'd break for lunch and where we come in in the morning, we'd walk in there. We'd walk 20 yards out. That was our set. Bam, 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 come back in, bring everything back in the rooms, lock it up and go home. That's fun. That's cool, yeah. No trucks, no, none of that. Before we call it, as a giant horror fan, you did do one of the most iconic Steadicam shots in any horror film. Probably, I would say, up there with the Steadicam work in The Shining is the opening scene of Scream. Are there any cool stories or anything about the way that all went together? Oh, well, they gave me the script. It was the original script for Scream was called Scary Movie. Yeah, yeah. I heard I heard about that and then they made Scary Movie. Yeah, later. Scary Movie became the comedy versions, but the original yeah. script was called Scary Movie and they sent me this script and I read it and I'm like, 
you know, this is the biggest piece of junk I read in my life. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I read the script and I was like, who's going to want to see this? Is some guy with a mask chasing kids around a house? You were looking at the guy who wanted to see that film. And yeah. He, well, see, this, this is, see, this is why I say you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you get a prince. <laughs> and, and why not always is your first impression of a script the best. So you have to go in with an open mind and you have to, you got to treat every film you shoot like the Oscar winner, because you never know which one's going to be going to hit, and you never know which one's going to really you're really going to like. Well, I mean, not only was that movie a hit, but but I feel like the scene you shot with Drew Barrymore at the beginning of that movie actually kind of put her back on the map as a a list actor. Some people look at this in in one way or another, like some people have said, "Oh, you can't editorialize while you're shooting." But the thing that I look at is, I read a script. If I take on a project, I become involved with it. I become, it becomes a piece of me. And I'll remember what I did, you know, for years after I've done it, simply because that's just the way it is. And you have a choice. You know, the Steadicam can be an observer. The Steadicam can be an actor. The Steadicam can do things that a camera can't do in any other way. But a lot of times I use the, the placement of the camera to enhance the story. You'll notice in that opening the scream when Drew gets on the phone and the popcorn's popping and she's in the kitchen and the camera comes in on her just as she's getting really scared. The camera doesn't come straight in on her. It comes in and it twists like this and it goes. Yeah. And it lands on her because that's the moment that she's really knows she's in the in the doghouse. You know, it seems like such a choreographed sequence. It seems like such a well constructed well-built sequence how much of that was Wes Craven how much of that was the DP how much of that was you it was all of us working together I mean we we you know usually in in that situation we watched a rehearsal I saw what was going to happen and then I did what I did um, on top of that I mean I, I had a lot of leeway on that you know I'd worked with Wes one time before on a movie called the people under the stairs oh I know it well and um, Wes was a lovely man I mean, I'm it's so sad to hear he's gone, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super bummed that I never met him and like, you know, sort of being in the horror world. I know a lot of people who knew him and mm-hmm. nobody I ever had one bad thing to say about the guy. He's, he just seemed so generous and awesome. I met at his company a few times, but I never mm-hmm. met him to me. It was a huge, a huge loss. Cause he's just one of the, one of the greats. Well, he absolutely was. And just so kind. I mean, we shot the majority of that sequence in one night. Really? Yeah. And, and he came in the next day and said, I just want to let you know that's the best first day's dailies I've ever had on any movie. Wow. He was just over the top about them. Some people may feel that way, but they just don't tell you. But, I mean, he came up and he, he told the whole crew, you know. And we we really got to do some great work on that. Well, I mean, that movie kind of reinvent. I mean, the 90s were not exactly the best time period for horror. There weren't, mm-hmm. like, a ton of great horror movies that are beloved from the 90s. There's stuff like Candyman or whatever. But Scream is like probably the biggest one out of that entire decade. That movie also kind of like Wes Craven changed on that film. Like, you know, I think that the stuff he was doing was more kind of 70s and 80s style stuff. You know, even even the good stuff that he would do, you know, it would be like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Ser- The Serpent and the Rainbow, whatever. And he had done a lot of really awesome movies. But then Scream was like he became a different filmmaker on that film. It, it was an incredibly good film. Working on it changed my idea about the script because, you know, once you see the actors, it's it's like everybody, the director, the actors, the, the technicians, all bring their bit to the script. Yeah. Everything you do, you have to keep an open mind and, and, and do the best job you can, no matter what. It's like I was saying earlier, you got to treat everyone like it's the Oscar winner. Yeah, yeah, of course. That was an incredibly uh, rewarding 
experience. For 10 years after that, every time they talked about a horror movie, the subject of horror came up, they showed that scene. Of course. Every television show, over and over and over, and to the point where after about five years, then I'd look over and I'd see the TV, oh, there it is again, you know? <laughs> there's, and, there's your work. Yeah. You know, like there's the thing that you that you shot. Was it two days to shoot that whole scene? Like how long? It, it may, I think there was a, a second. I was there for, see what happened was, I did the beginning part of that, and then they said, okay, we're, well, that's it. We'll send you back to Los Angeles. Well, I flew back to Los Angeles. I lived in Beechwood Canyon at the time, so I had to take a super shuttle back from LAX. And then as soon as I landed in my apartment, I opened the door. I had all 14 cases of Steadicam equipment back in the apartment. The phone rang. They said, go back to the airport. We decided we want to shoot some more stuff. Where did they shoot that? In Santa Rosa, California. Oh, okay. And they, they, picked, they picked me back up from the airport at both times in a limousine because it was cheaper to get a limousine than it, was to get a, <laughs> than it was to get a truck to go to Santa Rosa. And so they, I threw all my cases in the back of the limousine where all the party people would go. And I rode up to Santa Rosa and shot more. And then I came back again. And I think I had another film to do or something. So I had to, to leave at that point. And there were two other Steadicam guys that worked in, on the middle part of the movie. And also they had a change of camera department at that point too. So they had two different DPs on the movie, two different camera teams. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a, there was a whole thing, but like, you know. I mean, like they changed out the, the whole camera department? For some reason they changed it, you know. Yeah. It wasn't Wes's call as far as I know. But anyway, I was on to others. Because sometimes, you know, when it was really busy, I'd do th- three different films in a week in three different towns. So I'd be constantly going back and forth to airports all the time. I honestly have no idea what the answer to this question is. How many Steadicam operators who were working on kind of A-list projects were there in the country? Oh, at that time, not that many. Really? Because it's just like, even in the 90s, like living in Orlando, I knew three or four Steadicam operators who lived in Orlando. Granted, they're not working on giant, you know, A-list Bob Bob Ulan was the big one from there. Yeah. He lived in winter park or winter haven or something like that <laughs> i went to winter park high school yeah uh never i, I honestly I, I never came across him but I'll, i wasn't working on you know even when big movies would happen in orlando mm-hmm. like the water boy or from the earth to the moon i never i never had the pleasure of working on any of those projects back then well back back then there was there was bob there was me there was randy nolan or still is randy nolan uh garrett uh larry mcconkey i would probably say in the states 20, 25 guys. So know. it's not that many. That's, yeah. yeah. So, and yeah, Liz Ziegler, you know, you know, and when you, when the shows like ER come around where they're shooting so much of it on Steadicam, that was Guy B. Uh huh. And, and Guy did most of that. And then when Guy would have to go to a wedding or something, he'd call me and, and I'd go in and do ER for a few episodes. Oh, wow. and, and then, and then I think Charles Papert went in and, and did a few episodes. But it, the great thing about ER was that the, the extras were trained so well on ER that they, they knew how to fold in just in, as the camera went by. And you, it never looked like they'd stepped in front of the camera. Oh, that's cool. I mean, they had them really well trained and, and the grips were really well trained. And, and like that, tell them just to grab me by the belt and drag me down the hall. And, you know, if I had to make <laughs> a really quick turn, just drag me and I'd somehow keep my feet under myself. Doing television is a different beasts than doing films because in films you have a lot of time to think about it and you'll do like two and a half pages a day on a, on a, on a television show you might do 12 but on like that opening scene of scream i don't know how many script pages that was but that's got to be like a 10 minute scene that you shot in one or two days yeah yeah 
It worked out really well, though. And it's super precise. Like, that's some, mm-hmm. pers- like, everything about that is just like a well oiled. Ma- to me, it's the definition of an amazing, amazingly constructed sequence. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, well, to me, that's what's that, that's what's brilliant about it. And I, you know, it's like, you know, you see a lot of coverage mm-hmm. or whatever, but when you see a sequence that just kind of feels like it's every little piece is building the drama and every second is building it, it's all, it just all feels so, so well thought out. Anyway, we pride ourselves in efficiency. Yeah. And not dilly dallying around, you know, and, and we just, we, we shoot, shoot, shoot and have an idea of what, what the sequence is. We, you know, we get sides, we say, okay, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Okay. We'll do all these different things. And this is what we got to have to have a sequence. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all be set up in, in a, in a way that we, we make it work out. Like I remember sitting on the front porch and rocking chairs with Drew Barrymore while they were figuring out what to do with the, the front door and lovely girl. She's very mm-hmm. nice. You know, I'd sit there and draw off a little bit because like I said, I just wasn't unusual for me to lose five pounds in a day. Doing it. <laughs> it was a, a great experience. And like I said, when when I think of a, a scene, I think of what can I do with the camera to make that scene unique and make it work and make it serve the script and make it serve the story without drawing attention to itself. A few years ago, in 2007, I think it was, I was operating a, a movie for Uli Steiger was a DP. It was called uh, The Maiden Heist. We had Christopher Walken, Marsha Gay Harden, William H. Macy and Morgan Freeman in it. Oh, wow. Christopher Walken is, is married to Marsha Gay Harden in the film. And she saved up her money to go to Florida. And he robs the piggy bank to have a, a duplicate made of a painting because they're taking these their favorite paintings. These guys are all guards at a museum in Boston. And their paintings are being sent to Europe on a, as a part of a visiting exp- exposition. They they don't want their paintings to go away because they're like in love with these paintings. So they, they make fakes and they replace them as they're being shipped so they can have the paintings in their little houses or wherever they <laughs> And so he robs the piggy bank to pay the, the artist to do the duplicate. And she goes in and she notices that some of the money's gone. They, they're in the kitchen and they start having a fight. And I've got a big wide, you know, two four zero frame of um, them fighting. And they start over here and they start fighting across and fighting across and fighting across until she gets him nailed up against the cabinet on the far side of the kitchen. Well, I could have panned over and centered the frame but instead, I let her push him all the way over to the side of the frame up against the cabinets and don't give him any room to breathe. So psychologically, as you're watching this, he looks trapped. Yeah, yeah. Now, people have said to me, you know, oh, no, you can't editorialize like that. You know, you got to go and just... I'm like, no, it makes a better movie. Because psychologically, on the subconscious level, people are watching this movie... And they're going like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're like, he's trapped. He can't get away. And she's reading him the riot act right there in his face. You know? I mean, that's not, I, w- I mean, I understand what you mean when you say editorialize, but you know, to me, I feel like that's just telling the story. I mean, it's well, economically telling the story. Then that's my idea too. You know, I, I, I want to do, I want to make great films. I want to make films that when people watch them, they're not only entertained, but they're watching pieces of art. That's the whole reason we do this. You know, otherwise we'd be, doing other things selling insurance selling you know filling up you know if if i had to sit down eight hours a day and fill out the same form for 40 years i'd be driving i'd be going crazy you know yeah yeah i mean i know people that like to do it but i would figure out a way to fashion that form into a rope so i could hang myself from the nearest (laughs) rafter. yeah we've covered so much i feel like i could talk to you for another six days uh to go through your filmography because you've done so much work but i really appreciate uh the time you've taken and and i think this has really been great great information so thank you very much for coming out oh you're welcome thank you
All right, so that was Dan Neese. Dan, thank you so much for coming out. You were one of the first people we ever thought of when we thought about doing this podcast. That's right. And thank you for being super uh, patient and flexible and coming on the show. Thanks for being you, Dan Neese. <laughs> so, Ilya. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, Dan actually has possibly the best BTS still of anyone so far on our site. So if you've not been to camnoir.com, go to camnoir and then you can see Dan Neese. So, Ilya, uh, I want you to blow everybody's mind and tell us who the war story is from, because that's who our next episode will be. The war story is from Larry Fong. If you're not familiar with Larry Fong, uh, uh, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. That's but, right. You should turn it off now and never listen again. But Larry Fong, just to give everyone a quick reminder, he might have shot the R.E.M. music video, Losing My Religion. He might have shot the pilot for Lost. He might have shot 300 and Watchmen and Batman versus Superman, Dawn Justice. Super 8? Yes. And? And? Kong Skull Island. That's right. And next, a reboot of Predator of some sort? No, no, a sequel of Predator. Yes. I, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Larry Fong is a legend. He's awesome. You should all know he's an amazing magician. And here is his war story. And now, war stories. So I had been shooting commercials maybe for 10 or 15 years and really enjoying it. At one point, I think I was shooting a steakhouse commercial, and we were blocking the scene, and I realized that there was kind of a problem, and that we're on the wrong side of the line, or maybe the eye line was wrong or something. So I suggested moving the camera over, and it looked slightly different from, you know, the storyboards that were there. And so I can't remember if someone from the agency or the producer, I don't think it was the director, but they said, um, hey, can you just shut up and shoot the boards? It was really hard for me, so I remember I had to, to take a little walk soon after that and go outside and get some fresh air. And I thought, you know, my opinion's not valuable, and I kind of had to reevaluate like my career and how I got to this point. Because I remember I went to film school to learn movies. I've been enjoying commercials a lot, but something's got to give. The next day, I got a phone call, and it was about doing a TV pilot, and I'd been avoiding TV because I didn't want to get locked into too much of a time commitment, but it was a, a, just a pilot. The voice on the other end of the line was J.J. Abrams, and it was a script called Lost. And even before reading it, I said, I need a break. Yes, I will do it. When I first met J.J. Abrams, he was about 12, and I was a few years older, and we both liked making movies. We made Super 8 movies, and eventually made some together. But, you know, it was a dream to be in the film industry. We really didn't know if it would happen or not. After film school, I was doing a lot of commercials, and he started doing his TV, and we both had a measure of success in our own way. So I get signed on somehow to do this pilot, and we're finally shooting some months later in Hawaii, and it's the end of the day, and we call rap, and then JJ and I look at each other, and then we just realized it's, what, 20 years later from when we were doing Super 8 films together, and we're here doing a TV show together in Hawaii on this beach. And we just looked at each other, and we hugged, and we just laughed, and I remember just falling on the ground laughing hysterically and people just thinking we were insane but at that moment we realized you know that dream had come true and we were doing it and having fun and it didn't hit us till just at that moment. Mm -hmm.
But that was my first long form, you know, legitimate uh, project, which of course led to my first studio movie shortly thereafter, 300. So I'm lucky that to have, you know, gone to film school, done music videos, commercials, TV, and movies. And live theater, dance. I also do dance and rap. <laughs> and break dancing. I'd love to hear your rap. <laughs> and now, short ends. So that was Larry Fong's war story. Look forward to his, uh, his full interview in the next episode. Uh, it's uh, pretty amazing, some of the stories he has. That's right. It's going to be a good one. It's time to pay the bills. And the way that we pay the bills is, of course, to talk about our fantastic sponsor, Ari. Ari dropped a new camera this oh, no. week. What is it? What is it? What is it? I want to know. It is called the Alexa LF, and this represents the largest Airy Alexa sensor that you can buy. How big is big? Pretty big. It's bigger than full frame 35, which is a typical stills camera. Yeah, like the the Canon 5D or the Sony A7S is uh, that's a full frame. It's it's larger than that, so it's a little bit a little bit bigger. Not as big as their 65 millimeter, which is still significantly bigger, but this is bigger. So it represents the one of the largest sensors that someone out there can buy and it is a fantastically cool new camera with all kinds of new features and all things considered it actually isn't quite as expensive as someone might think for a a camera like this how expensive is that it's still priced to rent for most people, but yes. yeah, it's going to be in the hundred to hundred and thirty thousand dollars sort of price range. Well, that's a professional camera. Though. It is a professional camera, and rental houses are totally used to paying those sorts of prices for the top end performance, the highest quality. The, all and that. What resolution does it shoot? Oh my, it shoots four K. So that's not the first area camera to shoot 4K because the 65 millimeter camera did that too, right? Correct. And actually we shoot more than 4K, but this is the first area camera that you can buy personally that will shoot 4K, like a real true 4K. What kind of lenses do you put on that sucker? Well, you could use most lenses out there that come in a PL mount and they did something really clever, which allows you to crop the sensor in different ways so that you can work with just about anything out there. And it gives you a tremendous amount of surround view which cinematographers love because they love to be able to see stuff coming into their frame before it actually gets there okay but if you wanted to use the full sensor size which is larger than full frame and i know from from being a proud canon owner that it is a different set of lenses that i want to use that would cover full frame what kind of lenses cover the uh the larry fong as we call it (laughs) the the lf yes the not large format the larry fong correct uh okay so well this sensor uh, could be covered by many PL lenses because there are several PL lenses out there which do cover that size, including the new Sigmas, the Tokinas, and and Zeiss, and other lenses out there as well. But Airy came out with their own new set of lenses, which uses a special mount, which is larger than PL mount, which comes on the camera, and you also get an adapter that immediately makes it possible to use PL. But these new lenses they have, which are incredibly high quality and really, really fast, are called the Airy Signature Series lenses, and they are coming out in the next few weeks. Also, so that's the other thing. The LF camera starts shipping next month. Sweet. Sweet. So going right. So, into, so they got nothing to announce at NAB or they're going to like drop some serious stuff on us at NAB. You know, it's it's hard to say. Ari dropped this at the BSC show, which is not usually a show for announcements. But hey, that's what was going on right now. And I think what it's going to be happening, though, is that. Uh, the camera will actually be shipping come NAB and that will be really exciting and there'll be a lot of a lot of buzz about that that here is a camera that you're not waiting a year for boom it's available right now and by the way it just happens to make like some of the best images ever from a camera in your face black magic 
<laughs> trying to make sure that black magic never sponsors the show i see i love you black magic <laughs> hey okay so ben my short end is large format it is full frame because aries not the only people to do this uh lately there was uh sony which announced a camera called the venice mm-hmm. i think named after venice italy probably not venice california but regardless the venice is a full frame size camera essentially they took like a sensor about the same size as you might find in a Sony Alpha camera and put it into a cinema camera. And uh, that starts shipping supposedly later this month uh, as well. And not to be outdone, but Panavision has a camera you can't buy based on the Red Monstro sensor, which is also a full frame format, large size sensor inside of a camera that you can only rent from Panavision. They call it the DXL2, and that is the evolution of the dxl which came out a couple years ago so red is licensing their monstro sensor for other manufacturers to use correct at least to panavision interesting yeah and they've done some really clever stuff with it they have their own color science and uh their own custom body form factor panavision has panavision has so it's a four-way horse race between airy sony red and Panavision, who makes a camera that you can't buy, but it utilizes that same red Monstro 8K VV or VistaVision sensor. Interesting. It's weird because I feel like we don't hear as much about red as we used to, except for that they're developing a, a cell phone. That's right. They're, they're really big into this cell phone and supposedly a couple of people out there have them. I've never seen it, but they also make a giant VistaVision or full frame 35 sized camera. Set you back about $80,000 just for the body, and then you got to... We're, uh, we're slowly getting cameras back up to the price that they were before digital. That's right. We're, we're getting there. That's right. It's, get, it's get, getting back to be that when, way. When so. we have a $250,000, it's still cheaper because you don't ever have to buy film for any of these damn things. That's true. So uh, anyway, yeah, it's a very interesting times happening with this large format camera race. And all these different manufacturers are trying to get in on the game and take over the space, frankly, away from the Alexa 65 and the Panavision DXL have been only the real cameras sort of available out there for a period of time. There was one or two of these red, uh, these red Vista visions, but uh, not like the uh, not like the others. Okay, so also honest question. Where does this stop? When when do we max out on sensor size and say, that's big enough. I don't need a bigger sensor than this. I know we've lost a portion of our of our listening audience right now, but uh, I for the ones who are sticking with us, uh, you might wonder why do you, it doesn't matter if your sensor is bigger or smaller, but it used to be very, very clear, certainly in the area of film. If you had a larger piece of film, you had, usually had what was considered a better looking image. Not always, but smaller some, grain, small, smaller grain, a higher signal to noise as we talked yeah, about. The, yeah. the, the same amount of grain comprises a smaller percentage of the image that's right when you blew up like super 8 and you saw how grainy that really was uh, a lot of it had to do because you were blowing up this teeny tiny little thing and when you were starting with big film you didn't have to blow it up you had uh, already way more image and way less grain but similar in the digital side I actually think that we're reaching sort of like our maximum size right here and my prediction granted this is probably five to eight years from now uh, I predict small formats are going to make a resurgence that people are going to get sick of the big sensor look and Mark my words, something like a Super 16 will become in vogue again. It could happen. I'm still not. Uh, I, I, I like the big sensors. I just wonder, like, you know, do we keep making them till they're bigger than shoeboxes, you know, just for the sensor? The answer is no. Yeah, because we're, we're reaching. We're reaching. We'll, we'll hit a point where we just can't make glass that's big enough for it. And, and it's not practical. It's really yeah. not. I mean, we're we're getting to about. I mean, there's some people who say, I'll have to have 65, but uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's most. At a certain point, we're not affixing this shit to a satellite, so it doesn't need to be any bigger than this. No one's driving a truck around to shoot their, their movie. And yes, someone made a Yet. camera a few years ago that was 
like that, that literally you had to use a truck to move the camera, and that's just not practical. Good times. All right, so Ben, what's your short end? My short end is yet another podcast, because I can't get enough of those. Okay. So uh, this podcast, I'm a little bit late to the party here, a few months late. It's called Dirty John, and... I think everybody should listen to Dirty John. You should finish this up. And, and and while you're listening to the sound of my voice, go to your whatever app you're using and subscribe to Dirty John and listen to every episode. It is like the most compelling edge of your seat thriller I have ever listened to. That's high, high praise because if there's anyone out there who knows the thriller genre, it's you. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, <laughs> so it's uh, what it is, is it's about this woman named Deborah Newell who uh, is like this 50-something uh, mother of three interior designer who lived who lives in uh, Orange County, like not far from us here in L.A. And by the way, this is all reported by an L.A. Times reporter named uh, Christopher Gofford. The Deborah Newell uh, woman, she meets a man on a dating site named John Meehan, and he shows up and he basically presents himself as an anesthesiologist Rich, smart, affluent, great education, blah, blah, blah. Their relationship escalates very quickly and they become very close. Maybe one might say a little too quickly. And as an audience member in the first episode, you're going to be like, something's off about this guy. And oh boy, is this guy way off. And it just it just goes off the rails and crashes into the mountainside. It is so good. I, I sat and binged the whole series uh, in about a day and a half just one after the next because they'd get to the, it was a little bit like the first time I ever heard the first season of serial where you get to the end of an episode and you hear that theme music and you're like, no, I must know more. And in the case of this, I came to it just a month or so after the whole, the whole uh, podcast had wrapped up. Cause it's only like six parts. Mm. So Ben, I'm hearing this. And I'm thinking one of two things, either this is the most riveting radio podcasty sort of drama story you've ever heard or you need something else going on in your life right now. Uh, with a baby on the way and uh, working on a, a web series and a play at the same time, I think I got plenty going on in my life. Then what you're saying is that this podcast is fan-fucking-tastic. I think it's pretty amazing. And I often describe podcasting as it's like making movies without having to set up lights. When you listen to this story, the climax of this is like the climax of any great, of like the greatest Hitchcockian kind of thriller. Okay. And all right, I'm sold. I'm going to download it. All right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to say any more about it. It's not a huge investment of your time. It's probably six hours at most while you're driving to and from work or jogging or walking your dogs or whatever, you, whatever you're doing. Check out Dirty John, and uh, I, I, I would put it up there with uh, Heaven's Gate and Crime Town as like one of my favorite podcasts I've heard recently. Okay, so then... Now that our short ends are complete, this sort of wraps up episode 20. Did you think we'd get to the twos? I, I never did. I never did because it really takes a long time to do It this. only took three years. But here we are. We're soundly in the twos now. Well, by our first two. Wait till we get to 100 episodes, Elliot. Oh what are we going to do when we, when we get to 100 episodes? I think you should, uh, you should promise the audience something really special and expensive. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if we get any more fan mail after Charles Pappard. The bar has been set really high now. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know that we're going to have any like, you know, famous cinematographers uh, doing it. You know, I don't know. Charles, I'm sure you don't know any other famous cinematographers who could send us some <laughs> fan mail. Charles is going to start sending us hate mail the way this is going. So. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben. Hey, uh, who made this, this show possible? 
hey, well, this show is made possible by you and me. Firstly, yeah. firstly, yeah. Let's <laughs> let, let's 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 <laughs> forget those other people. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's take all the credit on this one. Uh, yeah. But uh, as always, edited by Mike Wilbanks at LumosPictures.com. Mike, 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 Mike. Mike is a uh, Mike is totally turned around our model for getting to do this and uh all the music that you've heard in this episode is by k's alatrachi you can find him at musicbyk's.com. hire k's have him score your next project he's you an can, amazing composer you can probably hear a little bit of his music right now right now it's probably playing and also just so you know k's is also he's an amazing uh colorist he, he color corrected uh victor crowley the new adam green movie for god's sakes and he does some visual effects and he's into visual effects he's also a director i i uh, what this what can this guy not do when i grow up i want to be k's is what i'm saying i'm pretty sure he doesn't listen to this show i don't think he's ever listened to a single episode even though we've plugged him now 20 times yes that's the 20th right. plug case at least 20 plugs up yours case case we know you're not listening all right <laughs> and, and then alana cody alana cody our producer our fine producer without whom we would not be cranking these episodes nearly as quickly all right thanks alana and uh Ilya, where can people find you you can find me at hot rod cameras hotrodcameras.com and you can just find me on twitter at neptune salad or i'm on facebook uh or i'm also on instagram benjamin underscore rock because i didn't really think instagram was going to be a big deal well, you know, you can find me at those places too, but you know, you can, they can find the podcast at, at CinePod on Facebook and you can go ahead and like that. But you know, what would be really great. Review us on iTunes or subscribe. Review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Short ends with a Z. Uh, it was, the other one was taken. And hit us up on, uh, on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, ask us questions to ask our future guests, suggest future guests. And we'll see you episode 21 with Larry Fong. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.